Dan Mack is back, and this year she has sought out the best customer-centric thought leaders from around the world. Are you after practical, accessible, and customer-centric marketing? You're in the right place. Sit back and enjoy Dan's small business podcast. For more information, go to www.daniellemckinnis.com or visit www.mckinnismarketing.com.au. So welcome um, to my podcast again, and I'm delighted to have Nigel Dwar, who has written this book, Tilt, Shifting Your Strategy from Products to Customers. So welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Danielle. So I've been watching this book um, reviews coming in and listening to the podcast with interest and even noticed um, that you've got some press from the Prime Minister of Canada getting to know <laughs> Kilt, Kilt, which yes. is just fantastic. I just yes. wondered whether you could tell me a little bit about why you decided to write this book. Yes, absolutely. So for the past uh, 20 years or so, I've had the privilege of uh, working with uh, some of the leading companies around the world, as well as startups. And um, I've worked on three different continents, uh, but I've worked with companies on uh, uh, in Latin America too, so that's four different continents, and with uh, companies in a wide variety of industries. And in Many of these companies, what I find is that even though managers pay lip service to customer centricity, their mode of functioning, their strategy, their thinking, uh, and even their doing, their actions, uh, belie a certain product centricity. Mm. So companies tend to be organized by products, product divisions. They have product managers managing products. Their job is to move product units. Uh, they have product pipelines. They have uh, measures associated with product market share, product profitability. Uh, product innovation is what they focus on for next year's results. And so they tend to be very product-centric. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote this book as, a, as an antidote to product-centricity. Mm. And I think, and there's been a number of books that have sort of come out, out just recently. I'm not sh- sure if you're familiar with Peter Fader, but he's written something along yes, similar lines. Yes, and I was listening to a podcast um, uh, just the other day with him, and I guess it, I wanted to just test this assumption with you. One of his sort of contentions, and it's very similar to yours, but it was almost um, that yes. You know, we should be moving towards this customer-centric model because, you know, it really our customers demand it and it's a point of differentiation. But what he made in his book was this assertion that it's just not every customer that deserves that level of interaction and we need to make a really um, conscious effort about the level to which we offer customer-centricity to different customers. I wanted to look... And explore that with you. And I also wanted to talk about you actually explaining the concept of tilt as well. Absolutely. So I, I think the idea that uh, you don't offer customer centricity to everybody it really depends on how you define customer centricity. Mm. 
And I think the allocation of resources towards, um, you know, once you start to allocate your firm's resources towards the downstream activities, and let me make that distinction right away between the upstream activities Mm. and the downstream activities. Upstream activities relate to sourcing, production, new product development, uh, the making of products. And downstream activities relate to customer acquisition, customer retention, customer satisfaction, so customer interaction activities. And when you make that distinction, uh, once you start to tilt the company's resources from the upstream to the downstream, fundamentally what you're doing is you're changing the question that drives your strategy. Your strategy used to be driven by how much more of this stuff can we sell? And the reason for that question was very simple. You had to amortize the fixed cost investments that you had in your upstream infrastructure, in your factories, in your supply chain. And you wanted to move as much stuff as possible through that infrastructure. And so the obvious question that drove strategy for 250 years since the invention of factories was how much more of this stuff can we sell? But if your resources and if your cost structures are moving downstream towards your customer base, towards the marketplace, and towards your interactions with your customers, and that's where your primary fixed costs reside, then your question needs to be different. Your strategic question becomes, what else do my customers want? Mm. And that's a very different strategic question than the one that drove the upstream Uh, the upstream driven business and that's you know once you make that shift you can't make it you can't do it halfway you can't be half pregnant you know you 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 are you are either customer centric or you're not you've shifted your resources downstream or you haven't and you're either asking the question what else do my customers want or you're not you're still no if you're still an upstream business you're still driven by economies of scale If you're a downstream business, you're driven by economies of scope. It's one or the other. So what do you say to perhaps my audiences, which are sort of small service-based businesses? And when I say small, you know, they could be anything from a solo entrepreneur up to, you know, a $10 million business with an infrastructure that that feel like, yes, this is is the direction that we want to go in. It makes sense. It's logical. But the shift, that tilt, is a difficult um, conundrum for them. They're just not sure where to start. Yes. It's, it's not easy to, to make the shift. And, I, you know, I, I, I fully acknowledge that in the book and I, I try and provide a step-by-step approach to, to making the tilt. But I think really the book uh, starts with a diagnosis of uh, who you are and whether you need to tilt. And I, I try and define uh, the need for the book in terms of there's, there's three types of organizations that benefit from uh, Tilt. One is organizations that are obsessed with their products. And, you know, these could be service organizations, but services too have been, you know, service organizations have spent the last 20, 25 years productizing their services. And once they've productized them, they can scale them, they can standardize them. So that's, those are the advantages of productization. But you then tend to become a product organization, which is one that is obsessed with the product, which is obsessed with moving volumes of that product, 
which is obsessed with maximizing the utilization of the infrastructure that goes into building and delivering that product. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's one type of organization that benefits from tilt companies that are obsessed with their products. Traditionally, these types of companies have existed in the tech industry, in the pharmaceutical industry. They tend to be very obsessed with their products. The second type of company that benefits from tilt are companies that uh, find that they are uh, increasingly uh, you know, commoditized in the sense that their product is no different from their competitor's product. And they need to, they need to move out of a commodity trap where the more they try to differentiate the product, the, the, the more they realize that they're on a treadmill and that their competitors catch up with them fairly quickly and they're unable to uh, break out of a commodity trap. Mm. And the third type of uh, company that benefits from tilt are companies that are looking to move up the value chain. And you find a lot of these companies in either commodity industries or in countries that are trying to uh, trying to break out of uh, offering simply low value low price items and they want to move into higher value higher price items mm -hmm. and so those are those are the three types of companies that benefit from the kinds of uh, lessons that it, that I've tried to outline in tilt and you give some good examples of i guess uh, uh, companies that have done that and I thought a really nice one was the Nestle example. Can you explain that for the listeners? Sure. Uh, the, you know, the Nestle example deals with how they were operating in an industry in which coffee, you know, Nestle is clearly the largest coffee uh, seller in the world. Uh, they they have a significant chunk of the two billion cups of coffee that are drunk every day on this planet. And um, they, you know, they, they realize that it's becoming more and more difficult to, um, to innovate in the space, but also to, to get customers to pay a higher price. So, th so they're, they're, they're kind of, you know, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, they're stuck in a space where their company and their shareholders demand 3 to 5% growth, but um, coffee just isn't delivering for them because... Customers are now moving towards private labels. The retailers have become very strong in developed markets. And uh, that concentration of retailers means that uh, the margin power and pricing power has shifted to, to the retailers. Mm -hmm. The result is uh, they need to break out of this commodity trap. And one way they, they do that is to try and understand what consumers, you know, what consumer behavior uh, is is uh, emerging in the marketplace. And one, one of the consumer behaviors that is emerging is a desire for premium coffee, a desire to move towards espressos and cappuccinos, but to be able to do so conveniently and uh, to be able to buy or consume uh, espresso coffee at home. And so they're, they're, you know, they've been working for 20 to 25 years on the development of patents and machines related to the delivery of um, Nespresso coffee. And they finally were able to uh, find a, a group of customers willing to purchase the machines and then the pods that went, went with them because they, were, they positioned the product in comparison with a... Um, with the coffee that you would buy in a coffee 
uh, coffee bars such as let's say a Starbucks. And in a Starbucks, you, you'd pay three to five dollars, and I don't know what the prices would be in Australia, but I suppose comparable. Yeah. Uh, you'd pay three to five dollars for for a decent cup of coffee, and here you can offer the customer a one dollar cup of coffee. Uh, it's an espresso, which is fairly close to what an espresso should taste like, in the comfort of the of the people's home. What you're doing essentially is you're, you're you know you've, you've changed the comparison base from regular coffee to the coffee that you're buying in a in a Starbucks, and therefore you've changed the price comparison base. And now the customer is willing to pay the 500% price premium for the Nespresso pod because they're comparing it against a much more expensive experience in the store. But also. What you've done is you've reduced the customer's costs of accessing that coffee on a Saturday morning. So they don't have to you know, dress up, and get into the car, drive to the closest uh, coffee shop uh, and stand in line, have the exact change or have change on them. You know, all of those um, costs remain hidden until you start to realize that, they, that they're very much part of the cost of consuming coffee. And if you can deliver that same experience or the experience of an espresso uh, in the comfort of people's homes for a smaller price, the product takes off. Mm. And so the general lesson from this story is that it's, it's wise to understand consumer behavior, to look at the costs and the risks that customers incur. And by reducing those, we have opportunities for innovating in the customer interactions. And that innovation in the customer interactions is is extremely powerful. It's a powerful source of value, but it's also a powerful source of competitive advantage. Yeah, and that's the bit that excites me because, um, you know, whether you're using information like Amazon to provide something or Apple with design or there's even a product in Australia which is, I think, called the Robo Vacuum Cleaner, which, you know, you can set and forget and it does your vacuum cleaning. Um, while you're at work, to, to me, all of those little innovations show some sort of intersection between um, what I think is service design, is, is, is um, understanding user design and marketing and putting yeah. that together. And I haven't actually seen a lot of that um, tabled in that way. And I'd be interested mm-hmm. in your um, thought around that because I guess like you've explained um, the product strategy and, and I guess the customer-centric strategy. Um, similarly for developing a product and, and looking at that and taking it to market is this, I think, service design and really stepping through customer journeys and pain points and, as you point out, whether it's cost, convenience, the way it's packaged, the value that you offer at each of those touch points can be a really good competitive advantage. But I don't see that modality coming together. I'm just wondering mm-hmm. your thoughts about that. Yeah. You know, e- even product innovation, for, for example, the RoboVac robo that you uh, mentioned, uh, and even simpler products such as, uh, say, baby carrots, mm-hmm. are, are born f- from an understanding of uh, consumer behavior. And so rather, you know, they're not developed in isolated labs that uh, that don't... Uh, understand consumer behavior. The products that are developed with an understanding or that are initiated with an understanding of consumer behavior tend to do much better in the marketplace. 
And, and so when you look at um, baby carrots, for example, that's a classic example where and we, we know that uh, baby corn exists as an agricultural product, but baby carrots are a pure invention. They were, they were created out of carrots that otherwise used to be discarded because they were too, uh, you know, they, they were, just weren't good looking enough to sell in supermarkets. And so these carrot, the large amounts of carrots would be discarded. Some 30% of the produce would be discarded at the farm level. Uh, because it just wouldn't make it, uh, you know, it would not be appropriate to sell it in the in the supermarkets where consumers are very demanding and very fastidious about how the product looks. Mm-hmm. So uh, a farmer in, in California finally looked at this you know, mountain of carrots that they were discarding and said we could probably do something with this. And, uh, you know, his insight was based on, on consumer behavior where consumers would would buy a carrot as a snack if it was conveniently uh, cut. Mm. If it was convenient to chew it in one bite or two bites. And that insight drove the development of bite-sized carrots, of baby carrots. And, and that, you know, they, they were basically, they required the development of a cutting machine and they de- required the development of... Um, of sort of mixer, mix, you know, a, a coating on, on the carrots so that uh, they don't go white during the transportation. And uh, that's that with those inventions, eventually the baby carrot could be brought to market. And today, baby carrots account for more than 50% of total carrot sales. <laughs> so it's the result is, you know, you, the result is a new product, of course, but it'll born from the insight of consumer behavior where consumers were looking for a bite-sized product. <laughs> it makes me think, because I was thinking of another example in the local shopping center where instead of selling the donut, they're selling the holes, so the bit that was cut out as a snack. Exactly. <laughs> it's just, when you think about it, so innovative. And it makes me yeah. think, do you need a team to bring this to market or can it just be you know, a couple of individuals. What's the best way to gather that insight um, in businesses today and and who's leading it? Because I just saw an article the other day saying, you know, marketers are well-placed to become the next CEO because of this propensity to hopefully think like a customer. And I'm just wondering where you see that fits in terms of, you know, who's going to drive this? Mm -hmm. So it's really, you know, two questions. can, do you necessarily need large teams to drive this? And the answer is no. Uh, I think customer insights are born from the marketplace. And so you have to have people who understand uh, how to observe customer behavior, how to understand consumer behavior, how to, how to then translate the, the insights that come out from uh, customer behavior into new products and new services. Mm-hmm. And I sort of provide a template in the book in which I try and uh, look at consumer behavior at various stages of the purchase process. So how do they, to ask questions such as, how do customers come to know about our products? How do they come to know about our brand? Where do they look for information? How do they process that information? How do they compile the information? What sorts of criteria do they use to make choices and decisions? Uh, how do they go about selecting uh, and how do they go about considering and then eventually choosing your product or competitor's product? Mm-hmm. And so 
what I try and do is I say, why don't we examine the costs and the risks that the customer incurs in doing all of these activities, in approaching your product, in understanding your product, in finding out your, about your product and so on. And once we start to understand the, the, the costs and the risks from the customer's perspective, we can start to look at possible ways of reducing those costs and risks. And that's the first step towards innovation in the downstream rather than in the upstream. And that to me is a crucial, a crucial sort of step-by-step um, -step process where uh, the insights get translated, the marketplace insights, the customer interaction insights get translated into innovations. And these innovations, as I said, could be products or they could be services. But their goal is to reduce the customer's costs and risks. And, you know, it, it doesn't take a large team to do this, but it does take an insightful team to do this. Mm -hmm. And will, to your question about will marketers be better placed to rise to the top of organizations because they understand customers, we shouldn't forget that you know, we're just about 20 years away from when you know, at the turn of the century or just a bit before the turn of the century was was still the heyday of marketing. Mm. You know, from the 1950s to the 1990s, we lived through a period in which marketers were considered heavy contributors to the competitive advantage of companies because they knew how to build brands, because they knew how to advertise on television, and because they could move very large numbers of consumers to buy your product. So marketers had a fair bit of clout, mm -hmm. but with the market fragmentation, with media fragmentation, and with uh, marketing becoming much more tactical, uh, you know, everybody's trying to capture the next purchase. With all of that happening, marketing seems to have uh, lost some of its clout, and uh, you know, the finance folks have made it to the tops of the, top of the organization because they know how to manage the money, because they know how to leverage. And because they know how to, uh, they know how to finance new ventures and, and acquisitions and mergers and so on. But I think uh, the marketers do have a lot to contribute to the competitive advantage, uh, and and that is one reason I wrote the book is to try and uh, try and uh, you know detail what marketers can do to to deliver competitive advantage. So you know the the, the running joke is if. Uh, if you're a marketer and you want to know how to deliver competitive advantage, you read Tilt. But uh, if you are if you are a CEO or a CFO in the organization and you want to know what your marketing people are doing all day, then you read Tilt. <laughs> I like it because it wins on both levels. <laughs> <laughs> so you've you've had um, the Prime Minister of Canada get to know Tilt. What was that yes. experience like? That was wonderful. Uh, he was uh, here at the, our business school, at Ivy Business School, to speak about the uh, recent trade agreement that Canada has signed with Europe. Uh, it's a very large and very wide-ranging trade agreement, and he wanted to explain it, so he chose uh, our business school as, as the venue. And then I had the opportunity to meet him after his, uh, after his speech. And uh, I, you know, I presented him with the book, and he was very, he was very keen to understand how it it would contribute to firms' efforts to innovate. Mm. And I think it's got look, it's such a. I, I listened to Anna Farmery from the Engaging Brand and and the other podcasts, and it is one of the most influential books I've ever read. Well overdue. What's next for you? 
Well, it's very kind of you to say that. Well, what's next for me is, you know, it, it seems like uh, having written the book, uh, I'm 20% of the way there because I would like to get this message out. I think there's a need for it. Uh, there's, there's really, there, you know, people that I talk to really seem to be very keen to understand the message at a, at a deeper level. Uh, the, 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 you know, emails that I've been receiving from people who have read the book, the tweets that are, that are out there, mm-hmm. uh, shows that there's, there's a genuine interest in the ideas that I've tried to outline. And I think uh, what I'd really like to do at this stage is to, to make sure that the, the ideas hit home, that those who need the ideas can access them. Mm. Well, that's fantastic. And for those listeners who want to find out more, if you visit strategytilt.com, um, you can find out more information about the book and lots of other information and, and, and your blog. I thank you so much for the opportunity to um, interview you and I'll, I'll be following you with great interest. Danielle, thank you so much for calling. That's a pleasure. Hey, thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to this podcast. For more great marketing tips, go to Dan's blog at www.daniellemcginnis.com and sign up for her marketing tips or visit her website at www.mcginnismarketing.com.au. Catch you next time.